intro yeah let's do it let's hear it <laughs> uh you are listening to tipping pitches my name is bobby wagner uh, my name is alex Baisley. and this feels really weird to do uh, what is going on <laughs> <laughs> we figured we might try something serious for once yeah we have a we have a serious guest this time so. yeah we do um later in the show we're gonna have uh former sports illustrated espn new york times bestselling author journalist and podcast host jeff perlman um, who wrote an awesome book that we talked about earlier on this podcast uh, called The Bad Guys One about the 86 Mets and just their antics and their ridiculousness and how they probably should have never won a title, but they were also destined to. So yeah, he was really fun to talk to. I'm really excited that he came on. Yeah, this was a, this was a really good interview. Um, so We I got can't... to get into like the nitty gritty of like the writing process and what's like to write books and stuff. So it's yeah, something I, mean, I wanted to talk it, to. It's stuff that we like nerd out on. <laughs> like, yeah, but like, I think it's definitely interesting. Yeah. So, so this was good. So I think, I think y'all will enjoy this. But until then, until then, <laughs> we have some other things to talk about. The, the baseball off season is chugging along. Yeah. We don't keep it too serious. No. And speaking of not too serious, 10 people in New York city didn't take their mayoral voting sheet very seriously Frankly, this past week. We are all better for it. <laughs> So, a uh, story from this past week, 10 people wrote in Aaron Judge for mayor of New York City. I'm sort of disappointed in people of New York. 10? That's it? I know, right? Porzingis got more. He, Por- got, he got 11. What? Yeah. Porzingis rules New York City. Yeah, Basketball rules New York City. Except two out of those people didn't spell his name right. Oh, yeah. No, I actually <laughs> saw that. It was like Porzeus. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't even have an Chris N. Or a, yeah, they didn't even have an N or a Z in there. Yeah. I'm like, what? That's really just poor effort on their yeah. part. Um, but anyway, yes, we at Tipping Pitches endorse this position, Aaron Judge for New York City Mayor. Who would you write in if you didn't? If you couldn't write in Aaron Judge, who would you write in for New York City Mayor? Like a baseball player or just anyone <laughs> in the world? I suppose you could interpret it how you want, but this is a baseball podcast. Crickets. <laughs> uh, Brett Gardner. Brett Gardner. Sheriff of the town. He'd put his foot down on that crime. You thought broken windows was bad before. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> um we talk a lot about Brett Gardner being like police chief straight laced. We had known nothing about Brett Gardner's political views. Unless you do, and I, I don't. I no, certainly No, it's don't. more just like there was like one it was from that brawl earlier this year, um, with between the Yankees and the Tigers, and he was just out there like really angry and upset and really bald and, <laughs> really and just bald. like and just getting in there and he was like oh stop this on my on my turf man and and ever <laughs> since then i just can't get that image of Rhett gardner out yeah. of my head this podcast has next to nothing to do with facts and a lot to do with aesthetics and how we feel about things yep but it's our podcast so whatever yeah uh also joe girardi got two votes dang respect Ugh. do you think he wrote himself in probably him, <laughs> him and his wife jeter got one wow <laughs> Wow, that's really surprising to me. Yo, Daryl Strawberry got a vote. Daryl Strawberry and Derek Cheater, <laughs> kings of New York. <laughs> Man, you want to talk about um, PR rehab tour? Oh, uh, yeah. Also, you know who obviously got a vote? 
LeVar Ball. Oh, I thought you were going to say Trump. Uh, yeah. He probably did. They probably didn't publicize it. I'm sure. It wouldn't make it to my Twitter if he did. SB Nation's probably not the ones writing about that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think I would probably write in Syndergaard out of respect for, I think, having a Norse god as mayor would do well. That said, I think David Wright could actually win. Uh, No, I know David Wright could win. Yeah. If he wanted to hang him up and run for mayor, uh, he's from he's like South Carolina, though. Not, Mets fans don't care about that sort of thing. <laughs> That's true. All the Mets fans living in Long Island who take the LIRR to Shea Stadium. Oh, sorry, to City Field. <laughs> and that was a. I haven't had a natural slip Freudian like that slip. in a while. Um, yeah. All of them who take the train in, and somehow everyone who gets interviewed at those stupid little games that they play between innings is from like fucking Roslyn. Yeah. No one is ever from any of the five boroughs. Oh no, it's going to be like the first New York City mayor carried by like Long Island. And Queens, <laughs> <laughs> no, not even, uh, not even Queens. Staten Island, Staten Island will carry him. Yeah, that's true. Queens, no, uh, I guess yeah, Queens uh, yeah. because of the Mets. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, dude, Queens has a lot of people of color. Like, <laughs> what, is the, what is the relevance of Queens? <laughs> <laughs> wow, I am slow today. Okay, another NL East adjacent news. There's a very good baseball player who plays for the Miami Marlins, the team that Derek Jeter is dismantling piece by piece. Yeah, Derek Dietrich. What? No. Who? Who? M- Martin Prado? What? Uh, Justin Bohr? You're just reading off I'm Marlins just players? I'm Marlins players. <laughs> uh, Dan Straley? Is he trying to trade all these players? <laughs> well. Well, so I know that he's okay, trying to okay, trade. Okay, yeah. So we're talking about Giancarlo Dan, yes. right? <laughs> I know that he's trying to trade Stanton, but he said that if he doesn't trade Stanton, he's just going to trade everyone else around him. Yeah. Which is like... Yeah, so basically Stanton basically has, Derek has Jeter... to waive his no-trade clause. Otherwise, they're going to just cut down payroll and turn this into a losing team. So they gave What, do you him, mean? what they does gave that him... mean, turn it into a losing team? I don't know. They've been a losing team. Well, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> they have one of the best players in the league, and they're still a losing team. But basically, I mean, you know, as we've talked about, they've been people's like surprise picks in the last couple of years and it hasn't really panned out and so now they want to absolutely slash their payroll whether it's trading the guy with like 230 million dollars left on his contract or just trading away literally the rest of the team i think they want to get it down to around 90 million or so and they basically gave him this ultimatum right that he has to either waive the trade clause um or they're just going full rebuild mode around him which is, I think, not the place he wants to be. Uh, definitely not the place he wants to be, especially not with like seven more years left on his contract. No. They probably wouldn't even figure out a way to rebuild in those seven years. Nope, they'd be the exact same team. So reports say that he is somehow, he, he's like favoring the Dodgers right now. I don't know how that would happen no, financially. No. Uh, it just feels like they would have a $500 million payroll with him and all the taxes that would come from him. But this is kind of a weird move for the Marlins, no? Just I, openly threaten your franchise player? I would say... Not like violently threaten, but I would say, that would be wild. I would say in a vacuum, it's a weird move. For the Marlins, I just kind of like shrug it off. I'm like, yeah, Par for the course. Feels, feels about right. <laughs> <laughs> this is like very low on the list of weird things the Marlins have done in the last few years. Yeah. Well, we don't want to spend too much time talking about Stanton because we spent a whole segment last time just hot taking where he was going to go. <laughs> and you heard it here first, Mariners. Angels. Definitely not going to happen. <laughs> oh, yeah, but the Mariners. Speaking of the Mariners. <laughs> yes. Japanese super sensation Shohei Otani 
is, I think, favored to go to the Mariners right now by Vegas odds. Not entirely sure, but he's at least up there with the Mariners. I love that that's a thing like you could bet on. Yeah, well, that's such a crapshoot. Why would you ever bet on that? Why would you bet on that? No one has ever heard Shohei Otani talk about any of these things. Nope. There's <laughs> just been baseball writers, namely Ben Lindbergh and Jeff Sullivan, speculating about this, and Michael Bauman for like five years. Yeah, it's like <laughs> there aren't even teams who have like major legs up on other teams. I mean, I know that there are like there are differences in like are you a good team or a bad team, but like every team has a shot to sign him. So can I bet that it? Can I bet like the field against the Mets because he's not going to the Mets for sure? Yeah, because fair. one of the in the in the most recent stipulation, if you don't know, Shohei Otani, I feel like we've talked about him on this podcast, but just a, so. a brief five second recap: Japanese best player in the Japan League, he's coming over this year because he wants yeah, to compete Japanese in MLB. Babe Ruth, basically. basically, yeah, and he pitches and hits and would like to do both when he comes over. Yeah, so in theory, we'll favor an American League team, which works against the Mets. What also works against the Mets is one of his recent stipulations was he wants a place that has a competent medical staff. Mm. It basically it's just like fuck you Mets <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> So that was, that was a, a really hard subtweet I'm not going to be getting a Shohei Otani jersey for Christmas <laughs> but you might yeah the A's made their pitch how did that go uh, so they're pitching him on oh we didn't actually explain this so Shohei Otani's uh, I guess Japanese agent first of all great name yeah, great excellent name. name. Great name. It's going to be I, so fun to I, say for years to come. I cannot wait to say this for the next 15 years. <laughs> so his, I guess his agent over in Japan, he just got posted a few days ago, and Major League teams are now starting the bidding process, basically. But his agent required that every team, basically all 30 teams, the ones who want to sign him, submit like their pitch. So some sort of like written proposal of why Shohei Otani should come to that team, which so is generally like a job application. Incredible power move. Like it's like have these qualifications yes. before I even look at your resume. Yep, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. This is this is such a fun thing to do because like generally speaking, Shohei Otani doesn't have a ton of leverage because he wants to come over here. But at the same time, he could go pretty much anywhere. So. Yeah, what we didn't say is that because of international signing bonus rules um, and, and international money rules, basically every team in the league can pay him similar amounts of money. So this is a legitimate recruiting process. Yeah, no, he has a cap on what it could do. If he signed in two years, most it free would agency, be unlimited. Yeah, most free agency works like we give you the most money, you come to us, or you stay with the team that you were just at. That's basically how most free agent processes work, which is why the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers have such an advantage when it comes to free agents. But with Shohei Otani, it's actually like you actually have to apply for him. Yeah, because he's considered an amateur, he applies to these same rules. So the cap is, I don't know exactly what it is. It's like, what, $5 million? Yeah, and then everyone can give him the same bonus, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like 5 or $10 million with like... With like a, a cap on the bonus. I'm just throwing around these numbers like that's not life changing like... <laughs> money. <laughs> so what was the A's pitch? So the A's were pitching him on the fact that they're building this young core of players towards a winning team and they have a new ballpark on the horizon. He did say that facilities is kind of one of the things he's looking for. So <laughs> current prospects are not great just because I don't know if you know much about the Coliseum, but it's not considered the best of. It's not a baseball stadium. <laughs> it's yeah, it's really not. Um, <laughs> it's a whole different podcast. It's, it's just a concrete bowl. But anyway, uh, so that yeah, the A's submitted their pitch on on building this young winning team, um, and I was actually kind of like, okay, like maybe 
I was starting to get a little convinced by it, by this uh, Sl- Susan Slusser article in the San Francisco Chronicle. Take a shot if part of your drinking game is we mess up Susan Slusser's name. <laughs> we do that every time we talk about her. Until I saw that the A's can only spend about 300000 on him just because they went over the limit on international bonus pool money last year. So it's not great. Yeah, that tanks. Yeah, that's pretty bad. That's sad. Uh, they they signed Cespedes out of nowhere in 2012, which is why I was kind of like, all right, like A's dark horse, like I can see it. Maybe he wants to come to. He does want to be on the West Coast. That he, is a he thing. He wants to be on the West Coast. Yeah, shorter flights to Japan. So I don't know, man. I really hope he does not end up in the AL West. Hopefully, oh my God. every other team that is vying for his services on the West Coast does something illegal and and gets banned by MLB from signing him and it just falls into the A's lap. Honestly, yeah. I could root for him in an A's uniform. That'd be fun. Here's the other thing, though. I kind of wouldn't mind seeing him on the Mariners, though. I know. It would be... That'd be cool. Especially since they have, like, that history with um, signing Ichiro and bringing him over and... Part of Ota- they have that history of signing the other best Japanese player. Yeah, well, I mean, part of Otani, part of what Otani wants is that yeah. he said, "I want the ability to culturally assimil- assimilate, right, and and have that smoothed over by the organization. I want someone who has like the strictures in place to do that." So, I think it would be fun. I don't want to see him in the NL. Bye. Sorry, you deal with him, or you have him on your team. One or the other. It's a pretty big gamble. Yeah. Do you, Do you have a? You want to throw something at the wall and see if it sticks? Where's he going to go? What do you think? Predictions? Yeah. Like I just said like, at the beginning of the segment, it's a crapshoot to predict it, so let's predict it. Like real ones? Yeah. Um, Dodgers? <sighs> Are we being real right now? Yeah. Like, like that's probably my favorite at this point. Yeah. Just probably. in terms of, like, you're playing in a big market, big city. They will have the opportunity to... the opportunity to re-sign him down the road in a couple years. And also um, the opportunity to re-sign you, Darvish. Yeah. I think... And I don't know if you know this, but they're pretty good. They are good. This would improve their prospects to be an even better team. Here, Listen to me, though. Yes. Hear me out. Astros. Okay. They're kind of a dark horse to me because they have all these things, right? And they, they play in a big market. They don't exploit that big market in a way that they pay a ton of money, but they have a pretty small payroll, young core that he can come up with. Basically, all they need is another starting pitcher because they have Verlander. They have Keuchel. And the pressure is sort of off for him to be the ace, per se. They could work him in into the lineup. I mean, A.J. Hinch is creative enough that he could get, I don't know, 300 at-bats. I don't know how many at-bats he wants. This is something that the teams and him are going to have to talk about. But creatively, they could do that, I think, because Carlos Beltran's retiring, and we're going to talk about him in a little bit. But there's some at-bats for him right there. I don't know. I think they're sort of a dark horse. I would really like it if he went to the Astros. The rich get richer around here, man. But given all those benefits... Do you think they outweigh the fact that you would have to live in Texas? Damn, that was some shade at thrown at Houston, <laughs> man. I think Houston's kind of fun. I'd live there. Uh, yeah, but I mean, if we're talking seriously, I'm not sure that that's the place he wants to go. Also, Yuli Gurriel. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm out on the Astros. <laughs> no. As an organization. Okay, would you cut Yuli Gurriel for Shohei Otani? Is that a question? <laughs> All right, well, do it then. Cut them. Yeah, very yeah. serious. Why not? Hear me out on this. West Coast, how about the Padres? Nope. You want to be a part of a... He doesn't want to be part an, of any of that. An, or, an organization, if you can call it that, that has players on the field most of the time. And that, th- get that this, the players wins. wear jerseys. Ooh, 
Damn. Actually, I wasn't even thinking about that part, but that, <laughs> now you're really convincing me. All right. This is stupid. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of Carlos Beltran, he recently interviewed for the Yankees managerial opening, and it, it looks like he has a pretty good shot. Are you rooting for him to step into this job right away, or are you kind of cautious about that? I mean, I don't see why not. Frankly, I, I like the move. And I know the Yankees have kind of been struggling a little bit to find someone. They reached out to Bob Melvin, the manager of the A's, and the A's were like, yeah, no, he's still our manager. Nice try. And they just re-signed him, right? Yeah. I'm I'm into the Beltron move, man. I think Beltron would be an awesome manager. And like we were talking about, the, the bilingual aspect of it, which has, I think, been really overlooked, would bring a whole new aspect to it. And you have guys Especially like, in New York, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and guys like Starlin Castro and Didi Gregorius. And, and he played with a lot of these guys. Yes, so exactly. he, has, he has played with this team. He definitely has their respect. I mean, I don't think there's any, there are any players in MLB who don't respect Carlos uh, yeah, Beltran and what say, he's he, done. He could go to any team as a manager, and every player would be like, all right, yeah, I'm going to listen to what you say. Exactly. Yeah. I love Carlos Beltran, although something that gives me pause a little bit in some of the interviews that he's been giving, he was like, yeah, I, um, I take a lot from when I was with the Mets and Terry Collins was our manager. <laughs> no, I'm right, just kidding. Were, were I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Terry, I love you. He was talking about how he has tremendous respect for Terry Collins and Sandy Alderson for how they helped him come back from a knee injury or something like that. So, I mean, he has the the wealth of lifetime experience to just step into a clubhouse and lead it and, and go along with this trend that we were talking about last episode about managers that can connect better with players and it's not like who the Yankees have interviewed is just like a murderer's row of (laughs) potential coaches so far they've interviewed the bench coach under Joe Girardi which is like that's not good that's like breaking up with your girlfriend and dating her friend (laughs) (laughs) Giants bench coach Hensley Mullins Mullins I don't know Dodgers third base coach Chris Woodward uh former player Aaron Boone and former major league manager Eric Wedge and Wedge is the only one who's had past managerial experience so i imagine they'll probably interview a couple more people because they're the yankees and this is a huge job and they don't want to mess it up because there was basically nothing wrong with girardi so the next manager better be damn good (laughs) yeah right but i i feel like he's a favorite right now yeah i mean i don't think that there's necessarily i mean there's certainly a learning curve but like i don't know how much you would gain from him like taking a few years off it is i am curious this is probably something we should have looked up beforehand, but like I'm curious. We say that way too often. I know. I'm curious how many players actually jump into managerial roles right away. It's got to be very few. I know that players. I can't really think of any. Brad Osmus, he might have had a couple years in between, but yeah. it happened. It happens in the NBA some, from time to time. Jason right. Kidd and right. Derek right. Fisher, and um, and I don't know really why that is. You see players go to like bench coach jobs or third base coach jobs, um, and this is you know obviously a really big jump. Um, but you know, I'm curious. Being the manager of the Yankees, yeah, that's big. Yeah, but at least also... he has a life like a uh, almost a full career of experience with New York media, though, yeah. and that's a huge thing for this Yankees managerial role. Yeah, exactly. Brian Cashman has said multiple times, and Sandy Alderson for the Mets as well. I mean, I know they're not the same organization, but they are in the same market, and both of those GMs have made it clear that basically the main aspect of this job is handling the media. Um, that's how bad the New York media is. But say your team is out of a manager, you're looking around the league at other current players. I was players. in this position not long ago. <laughs> I know. <laughs> other current players, who do you want? Who are your front runners? David Wright. Yeah. Period. That's it. We talked about him for mayor. How about him for Mets manager? That's fair. We, I mean, we even talked about that when the Mets were looking for a manager. Like, what, what else could you want? 
and a manager. He never got in trouble, never had any controversy, handled the media brilliantly. Everyone loves him. He clearly knows a ton about baseball. He's had an excellent career. He seems to have mentored the Mets' younger players back when he still had control of the locker room before Matt Harvey kind of took over and his back and David Wright's back kind of gave out. You know, there were a bunch of reports about how that team had great chemistry and they handled the press great. So I think David Wright would be an excellent manager. I'm not sure if that's something that he'd be really interested in because I don't know how much he ever really enjoyed handling the media. I think he just did it because he seems like a great guy and because he was the face of the Mets for a long time through ups and downs. So I think he would be very equipped to... I have no idea if he would want to do it, but I think he would be great. How about you? Joey Votto. Hands down. That would make for some great sound clips. So good. (laughs) Can you imagine him having to talk to the media five times as much as he has to talk to them now? Oh my God, it would be amazing. The stories that would come out God, I and I would just want to be in that clubhouse too. That chemistry or the or the environment that he might foster. I'm just everybody gets a donkey. I'm totally speculating right now. I have no idea. He could just be the worst manager in the world and create an awful clubhouse chemistry. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Facts don't matter. <laughs> I think that'd be fun. Can you imagine? Uh, what about Adrian Beltre? I think it'd be good too. I think he would be actually good. I also think he'd try to pull some antics like in the middle of the seventh inning in like a late August game that doesn't matter for his team. He like throws on a hat and runs out to third base. <laughs> just starts playing. <laughs> and just see if anyone notices. Basically any of the media darlings. Yeah. They would do well. Because you I mean, you have to be a media darling to go from player to, uh, maybe not necessarily media darling, but just like you have to have handled the media well throughout your career. Yeah. I think Ichiro would be good. Yeah, he would be good. Just because of like, he is universally agreed upon as someone who has handled his career with nothing but grace and skill and talent and hard work and all that. So I think a clubhouse would listen to him. I'm just looking through a list of like active players with like the most playing time who like played the most games, or whatever. And most of these guys, I absolutely cannot see managing a team. Yeah. Like, it, it, this is a very rare skill to have. It like is such a rare. Imagine skill to like, have. imagine like Puig, yeah. Papelbon. Cause you have to have like, some this is not a knock Kurt it. Schilling. You have to have like some emotional intelligence, right? And and you have to have like baseball smarts too. And I think a lot of these guys are very one dimensional and that they're like, I eat, sleep and breathe baseball, but like that's kind of it. And I am not so great on the interpersonal relationships or I'm not so great at telling other people. You see like when some of these guys give interviews out, like it's very hard for them to actually like explain what they're doing or how they did it they're just like yeah man i just see i just see the ball i hit the ball see the ball hit the ball (laughs) anyone who says see the ball hit the ball not a great manager probably not going to be a very great manager like i don't know i think robinson cano he would be a terrible manager mostly because he just would not want to put in the work of like crunching film and like (laughs) (laughs) looking over the analytics he'd just be like i am literally the coolest person to ever play baseball it just my swing looks beautiful I see the ball, I hit the ball, yeah. I jog slowly around the bases. Yeah, he's like, I don't care what you do, just make it look good. <laughs> just make it look cool, bat flip. Is there anyone else on here? I feel I don't think Joe Maurer would be a train wreck. No, he could he could probably be pretty good. Uh, maybe Adam Jones, too, actually. Because he's pretty good with the media, and he's well-spoken, which, I don't know, I think that just registers a little bit for me as someone who can handle themselves, right? Handle themselves with the media um, and not get themselves into trouble. Now we're getting into the weeds a little yeah, bit. Yeah, now we're just like, Freddie Freeman? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Ian Desmond? Probably not. Buster Posey? Maybe? Uh, he feels like a little too milk toast for me. Like, yeah. Like just like, there's a smart guy probably, but there's just, I don't know, not a lot not a lot there to pick up. 
Yeah. Before we ramble on any further, just with <laughs> milk toast names like Buster Posey, <laughs> we do have the interview with Jeff Perlman to get to. So uh, when we come back, Jeff Perlman. All right, so Alex, we have another guest. What number is this for us? Uh, I think uh, three, four, if you three? count if you count our boy Zach. <laughs> <laughs> if you count our friend Zach, yes, that'll yes. be four. But um, third real guest, I would say. Sorry, yeah. Zach. Today's guest is Jeff Perlman. He uh, is a former writer for Sports Illustrated, ESPN, a bunch of other places. He's currently writing a column uh, at The Athletic. And he is the author of several New York Times bestselling uh, novels. He teaches journalism classes at Chapman College in Southern California. Um, and we just wanted to have him on today to talk about the process of writing books about sports and, and writing in different places. We had a bit of a recording issue with the first approximately 30 to 45 seconds of the interview with Jeff. But it's really us just sounding dumb and saying hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So it picks up right where he's talking about apart from his book on the 1986 Mets called The Bad Guys One. He's talking about uh, a song from that season called Get Metsmerized. I asked him a question about, I asked him a question just about how how difficult is it to take something small and make it larger and put it on a bigger scale in a novel versus a story, which is a lot smaller and just a lot less words. Because he was talking about that on a recent podcast. He hosts a podcast called Two Writers Slinging Yang. So it picks up in the middle of his answer. Um, our apologies, but basically he was just explaining how he became obsessed with the song Get Mesmerized in that season to the point where he bought the album and he looked up all the producers and how uh, the background singers were like the nannies of, of Mets outfielder George Foster. <laughs> it's very strange, but it picks up right in the middle of that. So um, we hope you enjoy the interview with Jeff and it was a lot of fun to talk to him. Yeah, let's get to it. And and it becomes really funny, a really fun and funny part of the book. So instead of just, I hate the sports books that are just about sports. Like I don't really, I don't want to read a book about like, New England Patriots Super Bowl run last year and read about what Tom Brady said to the guys in the huddle. You know, I want to know what Tom Brady did on his off day, and I want to know what Bill Belichick's apartment smells like, and I want to know, you know, like, I love that stuff. So that's kind of how you do it. It's finding a million things like Get Mesmerized. It's reading every article you can find about a subject and circling every time you come across something like a Get Mesmerized. Or there was a thing in that book I remember, like, there's some article, it was like a paragraph in the New York Post from that year, which said Sid Fernandez, a pitcher for the Mets, was spotted at a pizzeria eating an entire pie by himself. <laughs> um, and I thought, oh, that's great. We've that's all been there. Great. Yeah, of course, I had certainly have. So, um, <laughs> so I love stuff like that. So that's what it really means. It means finding stuff like that and really exploring it and seeing what's in it. You have now written, I mean, you've written, uh, what, seven books now? Um, and you, all of them pretty much about these larger than life figures, but you've written both, uh, like biographies, you've written about, you know, Roger Clemens and, and Barry Bonds, uh, Walter Payton, uh, Brett Favre, and then also these, um, these like kind of bombastic teams, right? The Mets, uh, the Cowboys, the Showtime Lakers. Um, and I'm curious, uh, what difficulties are in terms of writing about like a single, person a uh, a larger than life character um versus a versus a team full of these types of people is it easier to to hone in 
on like one subject and really kind of get to know them and the and the people you're talking to? Um, or is it just easier kind of writing about a team that gives you more stories? Um, there's more depth to that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a good question. I um I always, I think I prefer writing about individuals because there's a there's a very easy arc to follow. You know, I mean Walter Payton is a perfect example. Walter Payton was born in Columbia, Mississippi, and he died in Chicago, Illinois. And then it's really a matter of filling in everything in between. And it's a very linear sort of structure. You know, there, there are little branches off here and there, but it's very linear. And, um, you know, when you approach a team book, it's the trap is, so let's say you're doing like, uh, I wrote a book about the, the Showtime era late of the 1980s. And, you know, the trap is a lot of the seasons in and of themselves are very similar. You know, they play the Celtics in the finals, and then they play the Celtics in the finals again. Then they play the Sixers in the finals. You know, like, it's hard. The challenge is to break. You don't want to get repetitive. It'd be very easy to get repetitive in a book about uh, a team in a bunch of years. So it's really, it becomes, with those books, it becomes much more character-driven, um, where you're finding all the interesting people uh, who, who made up the fabric of the team. And oftentimes, what's interesting is it's not the Magic Johnsons and the Kareem of Bilger Bars. It's a guy maybe who was there for a year. It's the backup center. It's the draft bust. It's the guy who was uh, in training camp for three weeks and whatever, set his shoes on fire. You know, it's finding all those little stories uh, because you can't, you can't just tell the story of the season itself and the games. Nobody right. cares about that stuff, uh, and it gets really repetitive. But a linear, what I like about the biography, the straight biographies, is it's just you really start to live the person's life or feel like you're living the person's life, and, and you – you kind of rise and fall with them and you feel the pains and you, you see the hardships. I mean, Walter Payton, when you write a book about Walter Payton, you're writing about this triumphant, magnificent specimen of an athlete. And you're also writing about this depressed, sort of carved out, uh, retired athlete who doesn't know what to do with his life. And then at the end, you're, you're writing about a man who's sick and dying. So it takes you along and it, it's a very emotional kind of thing, or it can be if you really fall in love with the, with the character you're writing about. That kind of brings me to a follow-up that I had, which is when you're writing a, when you're writing a book with such large characters like Alex just said, I feel like those large personalities can sort of uh, steal the narrative in a way. And and I mean, with a with a team like the '86 Mets, that's that's very obvious. Or with the Showtime Lakers, that's very obvious that they have huge personalities in this room, and and they kind of dictated what the coverage in the New York press was that entire year. And it was up and down. It's a roller coaster ride, and there's all these huge egos in the room. So, as an author and someone who has opinions, someone who objectively or subjectively subjectively sees how these things happen and and how they play out and you're writing it you know 20 years later or 15 years later or whatever it might be how do you kind of maintain authorial control of that narrative and and how do you pick and choose your spots where you should insert how you saw a situation fold out versus how it was covered in the press versus what someone in an interview might have told you right so the beauty of it all is like it's really like all right so the the bad guys one is is the story of the 1986 new york mets but it's really my story of the 1986 New York Mets. You know, like some other writer can come along and decide to write a book about the 86 Mets, and it, might, it would be maybe an entirely different book. I mean, the results are the same, but the book can be totally different. Because it's really, and it's my biography of Walter Payton, so it's me picking out what I teach to be the important parts of his life and trying to figure that out. Um, so you don't really feel beholden to anything except your judgment. You know, and that's important. I would say you can't. I don't think you can write for other people. You can't write for an audience. I think that gets you in a lot of trouble. Like, I write the book, and I look for the things that interest me. And hopefully those things that interest me will also interest other people. Um, 
And the other thing is you can you can do what you again you can do what you want with the characters. Like I think a good example. All right, like uh, with the '86 Mets, they had a backup catcher named Ed Hearn, who I just found fascinating. They had a shortstop, Rafael Santana, I found fascinating. Uh, George Foster, the outfielder, I found fascinating. Now those three guys were not the marquee players on the '86 Mets, uh, and someone else easily could come along and write a book about the 86 Mets and not even interview those guys and not even think about them. But to me, for me, from my standpoint, what I wanted the book to be, um, they were, they were heavily featured. So it's honestly just trusting your judgment and sort of, uh, you know, going And also I'll, I'll say to you guys, like, so, you know, are you guys, how old are you guys? Like 21, 22? Yeah, 21. Okay. Like I'm 45. So, 45, writing at 45 is really different than writing at 21. It's just all based on experience. It's nothing more than that. And as you get older in writing, it's like you kind of learn how to be the narrator without uh, people consciously noticing you're the, you're the narrator. It's like one of those tricks you learn along the way where you're kind of interjecting and you're, kind of, you're, you're guiding the story and your voice is there, but it's not super obvious to a reader that your voice is there. You're not saying, I, I, me, me, I think this is, you know, it's just subtle, and it's just something you kind of learn over time, and and after a while it becomes almost second nature. It's not like it's not the most amazing skill in the world, but it's something that definitely helps you as a writer as you get older. And I, I'm sure you guys will, if you haven't picked it up already, eventually you do. Uh, I think that as the bad guys won, kind of documents sports like 30 years ago were wildly different from <laughs> what they were today, right? I think if there's one thing well, you can take away. Um, and, and part of that is kind of how the players carried themselves, um, especially off the field, right? The team was not really uh, managing them. You write about how, um, how Davey Johnson wasn't their babysitter, right? He was just, he was like, as long as it doesn't affect the team's play, um, it didn't really matter. And that's obviously completely different today. I mean, teams have, uh, teams watch players every move, their social media, what they're doing in the off season, their um, sleeping habits, their yeah. eating habits. Yeah. Yeah, down to the very minute details. And I'm just kind of curious how you've seen that change, even in the last, like, eight or ten years, and just how you think that has affected the, the dynamic of sports and, and these stories that we get and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, um, a biggie, especially with the 86 Mets, is um, beer in the clubhouse. And that sounds silly, but I'm actually being serious. Like, after games, these guys would drink. You know, they would, they would sit around, and they'd have a keg, and they'd tap the keg, and you'd have 12, 15, 17 members of the Mets sitting around drinking beers, talking about the game. And then maybe afterwards they'll go out to the bar, Finn the Cools, and they'll drink and they'll talk more about the game and they'll hang out with fans and they'll pick up women and they'll brag and they'll boast and they'll be, they kind of lived New York. Um, I would say 10 years ago, when I was still at Sports Illustrated, maybe 13 years ago, um, I did a story about the wildest team in baseball, the Oakland A's. And this was the Oakland A's, Rosito and Hudson and Mulder and Terrence Yeah, Long that's my team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And uh, and they were great. They were fun. And I, I pitched this story. I'm going to travel with the wildest team in baseball. So I flew with the Oakland A's from Oakland to New York. And um, it was the most boring plane ride I've probably <laughs> ever experienced. Every guy was on their personal device, either listening to the music or playing their video games. Nobody was talking. Um, and it was just like, man, it's just different. And I really think, I really do think like personal devices, iPhones, you know, iPhones have changed the dynamic of athletes, uh, PlayStations, you know, like it's, it's changed the dynamic of how athletes relate with each other in 
tragic ways, in, in my opinion, just because there's so little dialogue. You know, before a game, guys used to talk. Maybe they talk shit. Maybe they would brag. Maybe they would go over whatever. But they don't talk anymore. They sit there with their earbuds on, listening to whatever, you know, to their psych-up music. Uh, and after the games, you know, the other thing is the money is so big now in sports and it's been so big for a while that they're so worried about their image, understandably so, uh, and they're so worried about sort of how they look that they're not going out anymore. You know, it's very rare that you see athletes like the 86 Mets, literally, they would just go to a bar, they just go to a bar and drink and blah, 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 and whatever would happen. Occasionally get into the occasional bar fight. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, right. You know, bar fight. I, I'm not saying that stuff is good. I mean, a lot of those guys end up addicted to coke. You know, it's not a good thing. But I'm saying they were accessible and they were out there. And nowadays, you're never going to see Mike Trout at a bar. You know, oh, you're never going to no. see, you know, or Dak, doing anything Dak interesting. At a bar. <laughs> or doing anything. Any of those guys, Dak Prescott, is you know, they're not going to be out. You know, they're not going to be out because it's about survival. Um, and social media, everyone's a journalist now. It's so easy to get humiliated. It happens every day to somebody. It's not worth it anymore. If you put Twitter in the time machine and took it back to 86, who do you think would be the first Met to get kicked off the team? Probably Strawberry. Because <laughs> he was a combination of like, he was, I mean, now he seems like a pretty nice guy, but he was a combination of like poor judgment and kind of an asshole. So combined into one, it would not be good for him. But they wouldn't kick him off because the guy was a star. Yeah. So probably yeah. some backup, you know, like you're not going to kick off your star. So over the years, I mean, talking about all these personalities, of course, I'm sure you've had some off-color, crazy things said to you, with the exception of the John Rocker story, which has been well chronicled. But it could be that, or it could be in another interview. But has there ever been a moment where you can remember an interviewee saying something so ridiculous, where in that instant, you just found it hard to even continue the interview, or or it just kind of threw you, and, and you were totally not expecting it? I mean, the Rocker thing was a good example, just because it was so preposterous. How did you continue uh, on with that interview after that? Because you, your job, I mean, so here I am, Jewish, liberal, New Yorker with, you know, ignorant, Neanderthal, meek and Georgia born, IQ of 12 relief pitcher, right? Um, and I'm driving around with them. And the thing is that you realize in journalism, it was a good lesson, and I use it in my class a lot. I, I still talk about that experience in 1999, 18 years ago, is that it's not my job as a journalist to tell you what I think. And it's not my job as a journalist uh, to condemn you or to tell you why you're wrong or to shut off the tape recorder. You know, it's just not my job. Like, my job is to find out who you are. You know, that's my job. My job is to find out who you are. And if that means swallowing all my sort of beliefs and just listening and not arguing, well, that's fine. You know, it wasn't my job to debate with John Rocker. It was my job to listen to him talk. So, um... I think that, you know, that's, that's, that's basically what I did, and I was fine with that. There's a story in the New York Times Magazine this coming weekend about Sean Hannity, and I just read this profile the other day. I think it's a cover story, and I hate Sean Hannity. I really do. I think he's despicable. But this story was brilliant because it really showed you who the guy was. And sometimes, I'm sure he didn't believe, with most, believe most of what Sean Hannity stands for, but sometimes it, it's just your job. It always, it's always your job as a journalist to just listen. You're there to chronicle. You're not there to debate or argue. So... Once you start doing it, it's actually not that hard. And it's kind of the best part of the job. I actually love hearing, I love talking to people who I don't disagree with, who have varying viewpoints. I think that's kind of the interesting thing of it all. You have 
pretty much had your content published in as many pl- places as possible um, over the last couple of decades. I mean, you've written for a magazine and for a newspaper and for the the famous ESPN page two. Yeah, and you blog regularly. You have a podcast. You're a prolific tweeter, and and now too you. What's that? He said too prolific, probably. We are all kind of at that point. But And now you have this uh, new venture with The Athletic, right? You're a columnist there. And so I'm just curious, kind of having been through it all and seen how the industry has evolved over the, you know, in the last decade or two, just kind of where things stand now. I mean, you obviously chose to go to this um, startup that is kind of rethinking uh, the sports page, right? And consult- or just and- reimagining the newspaper model. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious your thoughts on that, especially kind of amid, uh, you know, ESPN just went through another round of layoffs. I mean, they are not the only um, organization to do that. And so just kind of where things are headed with ventures like The Athletic, if we'll see more of that sort of thing. Uh, it's a it's a weird one. It's really hard. I uh, It's funny. I talk... It's weird. Like, I'm at a weird age where you're like, all of a sudden, you're becoming a dinosaur. And you're like, how the hell did this happen? You know? Um, I was at Sports Illustrated in the mid-90s and early 2000s. And it was a land of milk and honey. Um, they'd fly you everywhere. They'd fly you somewhere for the smallest of reasons. You could stay in any hotel under $400 a night. You know, you could pretty much rent the car of your choice. You could eat anywhere. It was just milk and honey. You know, um, I got there in 1996. Shortly before I got there, they flew the entire staff to the Olympics in Atlanta for a weekend just to congratulate everyone on a job well done. That's including secretaries, including office managers. Everything. That's incredible. It's incredible. It was a different world. It was just a different world. So, you know, having experienced that and seeing where everything is now, it makes me, ha- I hate to say this to you guys, it makes me happy that I came along when I, when I did because I was able to establish sort of a career in books and establish sort of a, a, a little bit of a, whatever, a brand, uh, such as you would call it. I think, I think there's a lot of good writing now. I do. I think there's a lot of great writing now. I, think the, I don't think the write, there's some huge drop-off at all in writing. You know, a lot of older guys say, oh, the writing. I don't see that. I think the writing's great. Um, I just don't think it's as clear cut as it used to be. Like when I got out of the university of Delaware in 1994, I applied to a gazillion newspapers and I, and I knew I could probably get a job somewhere. And then you'd work your way up to a bigger paper. And then hopefully you get hired at a magazine. And there was a very linear and very sort of, I mean, you had to work your ass off, but it was definitely possible. Nowadays it's harder to figure out sort of where to go. Um, and, and what the path is. I do think the athletic has a lot of potential. Uh, I know they're way above what they thought they'd be in subscriptions. So that's very promising. It's just a matter of these places figuring out sort of how to make money, how to generate revenue. Uh, it's it's hard, but but I mean the one thing I will say specifically to you guys and, and to, like I love being a journalist. Like I love everything about it. I love my career. You know, ninety five percent of my career has just been a joy. And when I think about like my roommates from college, one of whom went to law school, and another who's worked at a bank for twenty five years. Wow! I thank God all the time. <laughs> Very yeah, different. I just, I've had this guy, I'm not, right now I'm talking to you guys. Um, I'm not wearing shoes. You know, I'm like wearing shorts. I live in Southern California. I, I write books for a living. I mean, it's, it's sweet. It's great. I just think it's harder to do now than it was when I came out of college. It's not impossible. It's just a lot harder. 
All right, so I want to ask you a little bit about your writing process because that's a lot of what you talk about on your podcast um, and, and with the great guests that you have on there. First off, are you a procrastinator like Alex and I? Yeah, usually. <laughs> I, um, I'm better served. I need a deadline, and I need you to, and then I need to work up to that deadline. I can't. I'm very bad at like, oh, I got it in two days early. That almost never happens. <laughs> I, need, I need a deadline. Yeah, 100%. And I'll, you know, Rocky Three, Rocky Two. Creed, you know, I've watched those movies a million times, putting off writing. You know, I've, I've gone to every website, you know, you could possibly imagine while putting off writing. I've taken my dog for walks while putting off writing. I've eaten everything in my fridge while putting off writing. <laughs> I'm a horrible procrastinator. I'm the worst. And then the other question I wanted to ask was, throughout the many different places that you've written, you've crossed over to a lot of different sports. What does the process look like for you? How do you approach writing about different sports? Is there some kind of qualitative difference between a story about baseball, basketball, football, whatever it might be. Do you have one sport in particular that comes easiest to you, or is it just kind of all about the story, the individual story? Yeah, it's all about the story. It's not even about, no, I never watch sports anymore. I hate to admit that. I never watch sports. It's not like I think sports are a lesser quality than it used to be. I just, I just don't care as much as I used to, but I still love the characters. You know, like I have a column I have a column that just went up today on The Athletic, and it's about uh, Derek Kellogg, who's the coach at UMass uh, basketball for nine years, and he just got fired, and he went to, now he's coaching at LIU Brooklyn in the Northeast League Conference. And I was interested because uh, it has zero to do with basketball to me. It's about the idea of this guy who attended UMass, met his wife at UMass, got married at UMass, and coached at UMass, being fired and having to you know, change everything and take his nine-year-old son and his dog and his wife and move to New York City and coach at the school that a lot of people haven't heard of. Like, that's what's fascinating to me, the actual transition uh, uh, in his life. And that could be basketball, baseball, football, horse racing. It doesn't matter. So that I don't, the sports themselves, I don't, I don't really care. I don't watch that much of it. I just love the people and the personalities. Um, I just had one more question, and it's about your upcoming book, the book that you're working on, um, about the U.S. Football League, right? And I'm just kind of curious. I mean, uh, historically, you've you've written about champions, right? These um, these figures who, when they were playing, were at the the top of their game, at the top of the world. And this is a little different, right? It was kind of a, a failed experiment that that only lasted a few years. And I know that I know that you've written on your blog that it also has a a weird connection to our sitting president. But I'm just kind of curious what drew you to this topic in particular um, now after you've written about so many of these. Winning players, winning teams. Right. So the USFL was my dream sports book for years and years and years. And I was at USFL was 83 to 85. So I was 11 years old when this thing came along. And I don't know, you guys have probably felt this way too. Like, you know, when you're a kid, you know how like when you're a kid and things seem a million times larger than they do when you're an adult. You know, you go to Rockefeller Center in New York City, you see the Christmas tree. Through an 11-year-old's eyes, it is a million times larger than it is when you're like 20. You're like, oh, it's just a really big tree. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like sports is like that, right? Yeah, definitely. I see. Right. These guys are like, you see Albert Pujols when you're a kid and you're like, oh, my God, Albert Pujols. Then you see him as an adult and you're like, oh, this guy's kind of a dick, actually. He's not even that <laughs> Um That's the truth, by the way. But um, so the USFL to me, when I was a kid, it was like just this colorful, bountiful, huge names, awesome uniforms. The gunslingers and the express and you know they're playing in san antonio and the, and the chicago blitz and i just remember being like holy shit i love this league i love this league 
And I always wanted to write about it, always, because I thought it was fascinating. It was a challenge to the NFL, and it was spring football, and Donald Trump kind of screwed it over, and the, but just the whole thing is riveting. And for years, I wanted to write the book. And for years, my agent and different people would tell me, nobody wants this book. I, over and over, nobody wants a USFL book. So finally, when I pitched the Favre book, I actually, I, I wasn't asked, I loved it. I ended up loving the Favre experience, but it wasn't a book I wanted to write. I wanted to get a USFL deal. So I came up with an idea that had marquee value, Brett Favre, and pitched it with the USFL book. Um, and Holland Mifflin, which is my publisher for the books, agreed to, they gave me like not good money for USFL and pretty good money for Favre. Because all I wanted to do was write that USFL book. So it's purely a labor of love. It was my favorite book I've ever written on. It was an absolute joy. It's not coming out until next year, but um, I freaking loved it. Love it. Love everything about it. All right, Jeff. Well, we don't want to steal too much of your time, but we really appreciate you coming on. Um, it's awesome to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, man. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate you guys. You asked really good questions. So thanks yeah. a lot for having me. I'm George Foster. I love this team. The Mets are better than the Red Machine. I live to play, and that's my thing. This year we're going to win the series ring. Play together, a team feels tight. A mess with us, we're dynamite. Strawman Daryl is all the same. Call him Barry, what's in a name? Thank you, George, you're a classy guy with your black back. You know we sure rely. You know California. All right, that was fun. Yeah, that was good. I really liked that. I mean, we actually got to talk about writing, the writing process, and I mean, we had Anthony to come on, and that was a lot of fun, but it was much more Mets beat reporting focus, so this yeah, is more he, about, like... Yeah, he's an active re- beat reporter, and this is kind of, we, Jeff Perlman has the benefit of, of longevity, and he, and you know what? He was honest with us, too, man. It's a hard life out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Quite pessimistic um, for those of us going into the sports journalism field, but, I mean, it's fair to be honest about it, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, and I don't think it was super pessimistic. It was just, you know, the opportunities are different, right? And not as clear cut, which is, you know, good to know. <laughs> it's good to be ready for that um, because we, that's something you'll be facing very soon. I shortly after, so. Yeah, too soon, man. Yeah. I'm literally graduating in like three weeks. Yep. Like three episodes from now, you're going to be listening to a graduated me, which might just sound like, I don't know what to do. I'm scared. It's cold outside. <laughs> <laughs> I have no money and no job. <laughs> uh, but in the meantime, enjoy Peppy Happy Me while you still can. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that just about wraps it up. Unless you have anything else you want to add? No, I think that's it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please subscribe. Rate us on iTunes yeah, if you can. Share friends. Yeah, spread. We're trying to get a few more subscribers. Put a little more time into it as the off season progresses. We have some fun. Se- really, we have some really fun segments coming up. Yeah. So you're not gonna want to miss it. You're gonna want to spread it to all your friends so you can have something to talk to, talk to them about. Like we're a little biased, but we think this is pretty good. Yeah. So, we're doing it. <laughs> so so keep listening. You know, we we got some more fun stuff coming your way. <laughs> <laughs> the ego is so held back. We're like, we think this is pretty good. <laughs> we think that this is on iTunes. It is on iTunes. Oh. You can't, you can't can deny us that. Can you find us on iTunes? You Might can, you be able to find it on, on Stitcher or, or Google, Google Play? Play Music? Ooh. You could also find us at tippingpitches.atavist.com. Nice. Or, <laughs> or twitter.com slash tippingpitches. Tipping underscore pitches. Damn. Or reach us at tippingpitchespod at gmail.com. No one has emailed us yet. Like an actual email. This is the most drawn out promo I've ever heard in my life. I know. I can't wait till we 
if this ever happens, we actually sell ads and they are just as short as possible. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. We appreciate it. And thanks again to Jeff Perlman. He was fantastic. It was really fun to talk to him. Yeah. We'll see you guys next week. 